Father, thank you that we can boldly come before your throne of grace. Thank you that you, Lord, and your mercy, that you are a God who saves sinners. Um, thank you, God, by the substitute death of your own son, Jesus. Um, he takes the sin of everyone who would ever believe in him, and um, it's placed on him, on Jesus, and you have punished it to the fullest so that the guilty, that's us, so that we go free. And we get to be with you forever. We get you forever. Thank you for the good news of the gospel and that we have your spirit and we have your grace and we have um, just enabling grace to even do uh, this this morning, to open your word on our laps and to be able to, to hear it and to soak in it and to believe it and to live it. So, Father, this morning we know that um, this is your plan A. And I am convinced that I needed to hear this more than anyone. And so I thank you for that. We pray for our sister Sarah. We pray that you would heal her body. Thank you for her labor over all of Wellspring and her love for these women. And thank you for um, Chris and that she had the opportunity to go and celebrate your grace in her marriage. So we commit this morning to you. We praise you for the opportunity to be here and for the servants and Wellspring kids who labor and work hard to bring the good news of the gospel to these little ones. And I pray that you, that, that message, by your power, would impact their hearts and that you would save them. So, so Lord, have your way in us. Help us to um, not be distracted by what's going on or by anything else, but just sit at your feet and learn and grow, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so let's look at our Wellspring Disciplines and talk about them for a little bit. Now, you know we're here. By now, you probably could recite them. We're here to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church, that's us, to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ, toward him, with his word. So that we live gospel-transformed lives. That's the goal. We want to live gospel-transformed lives, and then it strengthens the church and its gospel purpose. And by now you know that this is what we're after in Wellspring. We hear it in our teaching and in our homework and in our discussion groups. And in much of that, we focus on our responsibility to shepherd our hearts, our need to shepherd our hearts. And what we shepherd our hearts with is God's word. And that is all true, and that is good. But, you know, maybe it could begin to feel somewhat of a burden if that is all we remember. Look back at the purpose again. Now, right there in the middle of it, you see that phrase, toward Jesus Christ. And this morning, we're going to take some time to remember why he makes all the difference between this being something of a burden versus this being a joyful, lifelong pursuit of knowing God better. That's what we want. And being used by him to show what the gospel can accomplish in the life of a sinner who believes. So let's turn to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, and let's take a look at what the Lord told the prophet about the Messiah who is now, um, who we now know is Jesus, our Messiah, our Savior, 
Isaiah 53, starting in verse 2. He says, For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by a scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. This is our Savior we're pursuing. This is the Savior we're drawing near to, submitting to and worshiping and adoring and trusting in this suffering servant. And remember, Jesus is what keeps us from wrongly looking at discipline one as a burden. Discipline 1 says she prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through the word of God and in particular the gospel. So do we do this because finishing a reading plan in a year or having a quiet time every day is just the way we do it at Grace Bible Church? No, not at all. Not at all. It's because this is where we meet with our God, with our Savior Jesus. I mean, where else do we have to go? We're weak. Where else do we go? How wearying to limp along in our effort to read the word if we don't keep before us the sweetness of our Savior. He's the one we find in the word. He died so that we can draw near and be changed. And so we can be women. We can be women who grow in godliness and obedience because we know and love him, because we love him. And we can be women who minister to those in our household with our heart for God and the gospel, and that's discipline too. Our home is our first priority for where we display the transforming effect of having drawn near to Jesus through his word. It's where it must be felt first in our household. It can be where it's the hardest too, right? But the good thing about that is that it keeps us from depending on ourselves. That's for sure. Often our home and family relationships are where we can best see how much difference it makes when we are remembering the gospel or not. Often we have a sinful, prideful desire to be more concerned with others' sins than our own. That can happen. Until we look to the cross and remember what Christ had to bear for our sin. And remember that he rose and he set us free from sin, including sinful, judgmental, self-centered responses that we might be prone to have when others sin against us. And on a positive side, our discipline to relationships, our home and our family, are typically, typically where we have the best opportunity for long-term relationships and ongoing influence for the gospel and what we say, how we live, and how we serve, and in how we repent. 
the people we live with have the best chance to see if what we profess is authentic. If we do love Christ, ladies, it'll show. If we love him, it'll show. Even if we struggle mightily with sin, we must refuse to be content to let sin build barriers in the relationships, and so we seek forgiveness and we seek restoration. Remember, Anne taught on that in the peacemaking lesson. And when we do, it displays Christ's work in our lives. It's what we want to do, and it makes the home the perfect training ground for Discipline 3, which is ministry. With a heart for God and the gospel and fulfilling her ministry within her household, Discipline 1 and 2, then she steps into the church to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. And that's what we're going to talk about today, Discipline 3. And whether we're talking about caring for those in our small group, meeting with a woman one-on-one, serving in the nursery, praying for our church, teaching Sunday school, cleaning the bathrooms, taking a meal to someone, babysitting, or being the Apostle Paul, it all needs to flow out of the relationship we have with Jesus Christ. So with that perspective, let's look at the example of Paul in 1 Thessalonians 1. So you can go ahead and open your Bibles there to 1 Thessalonians 1. And I'd like to read through the entire chapter this morning, and then we're going to be focusing our attention on verses 5 through 10. And while you're turning there, though, I want to remind you a little bit of the background. Paul's ministry in Thessalonica is found in Acts 17. And this is on his second missionary journey. And Acts 17 says, Now, when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scripture. So is there most likely a little longer than three weeks? Maybe, uh, possibly three months. But explaining the scripture in the synagogue lasted only three Sabbaths. Just think about that for a minute. Really, three Sabbaths. A church existed in Thessalonica because Paul was faithful to preach the gospel to them for just a few months. That's the power of the gospel, right? That's the power of the gospel. And now Paul's writing to them about a year later from Corinth. So follow along with me as I read 1 Thessalonians 1, and let's look at the impact of the gospel in Thessalonica. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, beloved by God, his choice of you. Now Paul explains, how he knows that they're chosen. He says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord is sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us 
what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for a son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Now we're going to focus this morning on verses 5 through 10 and we're going to look at five ministry truths that will better help us understand discipline three. Um, We're going to look at some important components of ministry seen in Paul's ministry with the Thessalonians. So you have them on your outline. So let's start with uh, number one. And just so you know, the first point is the longest. It's going to be kind of long, and we're going to take our time on it. And then we're going to move quickly through points, uh, through the four remaining points. All right, number one. And there's a blank on your outline to fill in. Ministry's message must include the gospel. Ministry's message must include the gospel. When we talk about ministry, we must be sure we understand what the message is. So let's talk about the message of ministry and the centrality of the gospel to that message. Remember in your homework, we read through the whole book of 1 Thessalonians. Did you guys do that? And then you looked for... um, kinds of things Paul addressed. Perhaps you noticed different kinds of communication, evangelism, encouragement, strengthening, warnings, commands, instructions. And we saw a variety of um, content with his communication. We certainly saw the gospel. And we also saw that Paul talked about walking worthy of the God who called them. He talked about the word of God and the return of Christ. He talked about suffering and sanctification, and relationships. We saw that Paul had rich communication with this church. His message addressed the full spectrum of the Christian life. But we don't want to miss, um, what we don't want to miss is where it all began, and what all of his communication was rooted in. And that's the gospel, you know that. Paul says in verse 5, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. The gospel was central to Paul's message. It was central. Here in 1 Thessalonians 1, Paul's talking about evangelism. He was bringing the gospel to those who had never heard it before. Paul used, Paul's use of the gospel, his view of gospel ministry was not limited, though, to evangelism. He didn't reserve the gospel for evangelism only. You have some verses in your notes where we see Paul's broader use of the gospel beyond evangelism, and we're going to walk through these together. In Romans 1, Paul's writing a letter to believers in Rome, and in verse uh, 15 he writes, So for my part, I I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul's eager to preach the gospel to these believers. And then in Romans 16.25, at the end of the same letter, he says, Now, to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel. Paul wants these believers to be established according to the gospel. And then in 1 Corinthians 1.18, he writes, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us, who are being saved, it is the power of God. To us, who are being saved, the word of the cross, the gospel, is a, um, in a present tense. Right now, the power of God. 
And beginning in 1 Corinthians 15, 1, he writes, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you're saved. The fact that these believers had already received the gospel, and they were standing in the gospel, and they were being saved by the gospel, didn't keep Paul from making it known to them again and again, <coughs> reminding them as believers of the same gospel that saved them. And verse 3 writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And what did he receive? That Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scripture. It's the gospel. This gospel Paul is preaching, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ for our sins, is of first importance. It's of first of first importance. And in Colossians uh, 1.23, exhorts believers not to be moved away from the hope of the gospel. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly, established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. Listen to how Milton Vincent, in one of my most favorite books, A Gospel Primer, summarizes the role of the gospel in the life of believers. He's going to refer to some of these same passages we've already talked about, but it's worth hearing again. So you have, you have that in your notes as well. So you can follow along. The New Testament teaches that Christians ought to hear the gospel as much as non-Christians do. In fact, if the first chapter of Romans, the, or in the first chapter of Romans, the Apostle Paul tells the believers in the church that he was anxious to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Of course he was anxious to preach the gospel to the non-Christians at Rome, yet he specifically states that he was eager to preach it to the believers as well, to the Corinthian Christians who had already believed and been saved by the gospel. Paul says, I make known to you the gospel which you've believed. And then he restates the historical fact of the gospel before showing them how the gospel facts apply to their beliefs about the afterlife. This is actually Paul's approach to various other issues throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. In most of Paul's letters to the churches, sizable portions of them are given over to rehearsing gospel truths. For example, Ephesians 1 through 3, all gospel. Colossians 1 and 2 is gospel. And Romans 1 through 11 is gospel. The remainder of such books show specifically how to bring those gospel truths to bear on life, re-preaching re -preaching the gospel and then showing how it applied to the life was Paul's choice method for ministering to believers, thereby providing a divinely inspired pattern for me to follow when ministering to myself and to other believers. So good. This may not be a new idea to you at this point in Wellspring. But for many of us, we have spent years thinking the gospel is primarily how, um, how we uh, are saved, how we get saved. So you preach it to unbelievers, and we do. But in all that, if that's all we think, it's, it's really a narrow view of the gospel. It's narrow. It's, it's not how Paul saw the gospel at all. That kind of thinking is missing something very important. That the gospel still must be preached to those who are already in the faith. 
So here are the next blanks on your outline. The gospel must be preached to unbelievers with the hope that they will believe. The gospel must be preached to unbelievers with the hope that they will believe, and the gospel must, must be preached to those who are believers. That doesn't mean that we neglect anything else in the word. We already talked about how varied and rich Paul's communication was with the Thessalonians. God's word is full of commands to obey and promises and comforts, but we don't want to miss our ongoing need for the gospel as well. The gospel is foundational. It's foundational not only to salvation, but to all aspects of our Christian life. Gospel puts God's character on display for us so that we can grow in our reverence and knowledge of Him. It provides us with new life and new abilities to love and obey our Savior. It gives us the certain hope of eternity with our Maker. And it sets us on a path in which we can be assured that God is at work even in trials for our good to sanctify us, and to make us more like Jesus. And the gospel reminds us that on our best day and on our worst day, our acceptance with God depends on the finished work of Jesus alone. So we can obey him out of love, not because we're trying to earn his approval. And the gospel is what ushers us into life as members of Christ's body, in which we're members of one another here together as a church. The gospel is foundational in all of this. So with that in mind, now let's go back to 1 Thessalonians, um, where Paul is emphasizing that the gospel did come to the Thessalonians. He's making it stand out. The dominant thought, as he reflects back on his ministry with them, is that the gospel engaged them. Let's look at, uh, actually, let's look at chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 2 of 1 Thessalonians, he says, But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. So he didn't let opposition keep him from speaking the gospel to them. But just, and then he says in verse 4, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. The gospel is what he spoke to them. And then verse 8, Having so fond of an affection for you, we are well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. For you recall, recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You know, he loved him so much that he did whatever it took to give them the gospel. The dominant theme, as he thinks back on his time with them, is that the gospel was central. And what we have to remember as we step into one another's lives in the church and beyond our church is that we never leave the gospel behind. We want to help one another understand the gospel better and better so that it can have its full transforming effect in every area of our lives, all the while growing in our knowledge and closeness to Jesus. I mean, really, how sad if we gave the impression that the gospel was 
only that which saved us a long time ago. That would be so sad. The gospel has everything to do with us growing in Christ daily, today. So our message must include the gospel. Now, if that is true, then what must we know? What must we know? Yes, we must know the gospel. That's why we had you write it out, um, the gospel out on your homework this week. So what uh, do we mean when we say the gospel? Well, on one hand, you know, it can be as succinct as God saves sinners. We already read 1 Corinthians 15, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scripture. And those are all core truths of the gospel. But when we're ministering with the gospel, we often include some context and some implications of these core truths. We talk about God's right to rule and the judgment we deserve because of sin. We talk about what the gospel does in the life of a believer and the promises of eternal life with God. So to give you some tools to help you better understand and communicate the gospel, you received a gospel resource handout this morning. Um, and one of, uh, one's a transcript of a gospel summary from Smedley that he taught back in 2010, preaching the gospel to yourself. And then one's from Mark Dever's book, The Gospel and Personal Evangelism, where he gives uh, the gospel in a minute. And there's a link to an online gospel presentation entitled Two Ways to Live There. Um, there's also information about the Two Ways to Live app. And you may be familiar with Gospel Primer. I brought my copy. Well, this is one copy. Um, and this is just one of my most favorite books. And it can be purchased at the book table on Sunday. I think it's about $10. And um, it, not only inc- it, it includes short devotional readings to help us understand the gospel's implication for our lives, but it also lays out the gospel very, very clearly with scripture included. And so these, you know, if, you're, if you feel weak in that, I feel weak in that. I need, I need to have... Um, those reminders and those scripture before me constantly and there's just some tools to help you grow in and communicating the gospel and shepherding with the gospel both in your own thoughts as well as in others um, god places in your life so although it was uh, in your homework last week we're going to have you hang on to um, the gospel you wrote out and look at it again this week and refine it if you need to we just can't review the gospel too much, right? Um, and as we all continue to grow in our understanding of the gospel's power and purposes, we'll be more willing to talk about it, yeah, both with unbelievers and with those who do believe. And that's what we want to do. The gospel's just not information. There is not just information that we must know. It's about knowing Christ. It needs to saturate us because tells us about our Savior. And so as we think about ministry, we have the whole counsel of God, all of his word and its power to make us more like Christ. We want to be, we want to use God's word. We want to use God's word as we care for one another. And as we do that, we need to remember Paul's example, how he was eager to preach the gospel to believers. And make it known to them and to establish them in it. He said that it was of first importance 
that it was the power of God for those who believe, and the believers must not move away from the hope of the gospel. So the gospel was foundational under his instruction, his teaching, his encouragement, his warning, and his commands, and our relationships need the gospel too. That's what belongs at the center of our relationships, just as it was for Paul's. We want to be thinking, you know, you're my sister in Christ, or my brother in Christ, and I want to encourage you with the gospel, and I want you to give the gospel to me. I, I need that. Is that your heart when you go to someone? Maybe, you know, as you're struggling, do we ask them to preach the gospel to us? I'm, I'm weak, and I'm struggling. I need you to just tell me the gospel. Because when we're struggling, where do we need to begin? We need to begin there. It's with the gospel. When we we begin with remembering who God is and the offensiveness that our sin is to him and what Christ suffered so that our sin could be forgiven and that he rose from the dead so that believers are freed from sin's enslavement and can walk in newness of life. I, I need to hear that when I'm struggling. It softens our hearts to repent. We, we grieve over the high cost Jesus endured for us. And thinking about our sin in light of the cross sweetens our love for Jesus, and the gospel prepares us to fight our sin, to obey his commands, his commands that allow us to display the new life that he's given us. And keeping the gospel central gives us hope gives us hope. It helps us to remember that we are saved by grace. We are not under condemnation. Jesus bore all of the condemnation we deserve. We are deeply loved by God. And we see that as the sharpest focus in the gospel. Of course, ministry isn't always about the sin, you know, that we're struggling with. We need to encourage and help and instruct one another in many different circumstances and seasons of life. And remembering the gospel, including the gospel, can provide great comfort and encouragement and hope and endurance. And, you know, it just takes practice to do this. You know, our habit when we're struggling may not be to look there, may not be to look to the gospel, or to ask others to point us there. You know, at times we may feel stuck, or kind of even wallowing in that struggle. I can do that. And feeling guilty, or hurt, maybe wanting to even withdraw. And so we need to walk carefully and humbly with one another as we grow in bringing the gospel to one another in appropriate ways. We never stop being compassionate and sympathetic, concerned, mourning with those who mourn, patient with everyone. We never stop. And in the midst of loving one another, we bring the gospel to one another because that is where our hope is. That's where we're drawn back to, drawn back to the one who deeply loves us. So, ministry's message must include the gospel. Point number two. Ministry requires an uncommon messenger. Ministry requires an uncommon messenger. As important as the gospel message is, that wasn't Paul's leading concern in 1 Thessalonians 1 and 2. The interesting thing 
is that here, he was m- more concerned to talk about, or to talk not about the contents of the message, but the carrier of the message. His concern was to remind them of the kind of messengers who brought the gospel to them. Why? Well, because there were some trouble, uh, some terrible accusa- accusations floating around. Thessalonica, Paul was being slandered for the sake of the gospel. He needed to remind them of the kind of gospel messenger that he was. So let's read again 1 Thessalonians 1, um, 5. He says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So how did the gospel come? Well, it did come in word, but not only in word, not, not in word only. It came in power. It came in the Holy Spirit. And it came with full conviction. And how do we know the gospel came this way? What does Paul point to by way of evidence? Finishing verse 5, he says, Just as you know, what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. Just as is a word showing comparison. It's almost like an equal sign. So Paul's saying that the evidence that, that the gospel came with power in the spirit with full conviction is the kind of messengers he and his co-laborers were. Paul's fo- focusing them beyond just what the content of the gospel message um, is here. When he thinks back on his gospel ministry with them, he remembers three things about it. First, he remembers that he came to them and that there was power. In his interaction with them, the power of God was there among them. And second, he remembers that his coming was in the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's work in these messengers was evident. And third, he remembers that when they came, they had fullness of confidence. These messengers had full conviction about the message they proclaimed. That's what he's describing here in 1 Thessalonians 1.5. And again, in chapter 2, where we'll be in a couple of weeks, Paul points to, uh, Paul's point is to describe the gospel messenger. And that's because the quality of the messenger is so important. That's why discipline 1, the heart, is something we must never move beyond. Never move beyond meeting with God daily in his word. Is, is, that's what will make us fruit, fruitful gospel servants. Gospel ministers, uncommon messengers who come in power in his spirit with full conviction about the power and hope of the gospel for every circumstance. Don't we want to be that kind of woman? All right. When we hear three descriptive phrases like that, you know, my tendency is to kind of aim low. I don't always pray, you know, God, please, please, as I seek to bring the gospel into my relationships, will you send your power, your Holy Spirit? And God, I need full conviction of the gospel's power to comfort, to convict, to transform. I mean, think what though we did think and pray that way. Can you imagine? You know, what if, what if that were our focal point? What if we were thinking, God, I I want to rely on your power today in this conversation, in this response. I need your spirit. But we, we need to understand that what we're asking for, right? What does this power look like in Paul? Look at 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, verse 7. 
He says, But we prove to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Here's Paul. He's this man with power, Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. And he says, I was like a nursing mother among you. I was protecting you with my gentleness. Verse 8, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. Is that how we typically define power? Gentle, nursing mother, tender care, affection? If it's not, well, we need to change how we think about power, because that describes Jesus. He was a powerful man and the gentlest man, the meekest man on earth. And this is the way we want God's power to be poured into our relationships. Verse 5 ends by saying, Just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake, what kind of women do we want to prove to be? Will we be gentle messengers of the gospel? I mean, think about what this is saying. Will we be like a nursing mother tenderly caring for her children? We need to be that kind of women. And what will it take in your life? What will it take in my life to be this kind of uncommon messenger to the people in our lives? Well, let's shepherd our hearts to his word, to get the gospel, to get, to get Jesus, to plead with God for his power, to long for it. Ask for the Holy Spirit to produce his fruit in your life. Plead for greater conviction about the gospel's power to transform lives through your ministry. Because ministry requires an uncommon messenger. But we have all that we need in Christ to be that messenger. And that brings us to number three. Ministry involves imitation. Ministry involves imitation. Let's read um, 1 Thessalonians 1.6. He says, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord. Now, if someone's going to be imitated, that means they need to be the right kind of example. And if you were in church Sunday, you heard Scott teach from Acts 20. On Paul's example, he made the point that it's God's kindness to give us examples in the Christian life. And Paul's the greatest non-divine example for the church. Not that he was perfect, but as a gospel minister, Paul not only preached the gospel and established churches and instructed them, he also put his own life right there in front of them so they could see a life transformed by the gospel. He didn't just come and drop off an instruction manual and move on. No, he lived with them so that his example brought an impact to the lives of those around him. And that's God's goal for us. Paul says something very similar in 1 Corinthians 11.1. He says, Be imitators of me, just as I I also am of Christ. Paul could say this because his pattern of life was in alignment with Christ's pattern of life. He's saying, you imitate me. If you imitate me, you will imitate Christ. And as believers, this is what we should strive to be. You know the old adage, more is caught than taught? Well, we want to make sure the gospel comes in words. 
But we also need to push a step beyond that so that our prayer is, God, please make me into an imitatable woman. Make me an example to others to imitate. People are watching us. What the gospel, what the gospel enables us to do and calls us to do as we align our lives with Christ is to live a life worth imitating. Our desire and prayer and plan should be that we would so align our lives with Christ that others might imitate our life as we imitate Christ. God's design in gospel ministry is that we give one another not just the gospel, but we give each other an example to follow. So how specifically did the Thessalonians imitate Paul's example? Well, let's look again at verse 6. He says, You also became imitators of us, and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. See, we need to remember, because, you know, we often forget that we live in enemy territory. This truth needs to be preached to our hearts as well. We live in a very volatile place and time. There's a rebel prince who is fighting against our king. And there are rebels who are following that rebel prince, and the rebels that follow him are hostile against God and oftentimes they'll be hostile against you and me because of our loyalty to him. But in God's design, by God's plan, the gospel goes forward. And oftentimes, many receive the gospel in the midst of tribulation and affliction. Paul experienced that and he says that you became imitators of us having received the word in much tribulation. But then look what he says after that. He didn't end the verse that way. He says, having received the word in much tribulation with joy, with joy of the Holy Spirit. I don't naturally think that tribulation and affliction and joy go together, right? Um, I tend to think that tribulation and, and affliction will dampen my joy. But this verse tells us that with tribulation comes the joy of the Holy Spirit. Turn to John 15, please. And uh, this is what Jesus said to his disciples on the last night before he went to the cross. He tells us that there is only one true joy, and it's his joy. John 15, starting in verse 11, he says, These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. You want to have fullness of joy, Jesus says? The only way we're going to have joy is if it's, it's um, the, his joy in us. Joy is rooted in Christ and with the Holy Spirit. Now let's go to John 16. John 16, starting in verse 20. It's the same night before he goes to the cross, and Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but the grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hours come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I'll see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. No one will take your joy away from you. Why? Well, because it's the joy of having Jesus. And then look at 17, John 17, 
starting in verse 13. Jesus is praying to the Father, and he says, But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. He's telling him that they live in enemy territory. So they need to have his joy made full in them. And what Paul is telling us back in 1 Thessalonians is that God has a joy for us. There's joy that's from Jesus. There's joy that's from the Holy Spirit. And tribulation can't touch it. God's joy can be made full in us in the midst of tribulation. And it's in that sense that they imitated Paul. The word came to them, and there was trouble everywhere, and yet they were joyful. And we can have that kind of joy, and we must plead with God to make us imitators of Christ so as to be this kind of joyful example to others. So when trouble comes in our lives, there's still joy, and others can imitate that. He's telling us that even in the midst of trouble, Jesus has given us a joyful life that's centered on his word. It's awesome. God's word is awesome. It goes beyond our circumstances. That even when everything is hard, and life is hard, and when everything is hard, there's still joy in drawing near to God. And with all that said, it may be that joy has to be something to grow in, to learn, to be, um, and maybe a discipline to learn and to cultivate because, you know, you just can't say that you've got joy and no one around you can tell. If you struggle with joy, it's very helpful to study what Scripture tells us to rejoice in and rejoice over, and then we do it. So if you need help cultivating joy, spend some time looking up joy in His Word. You have some references in your notes to get you started. Uh, that might be helpful. All right, so we saw that ministry's message must include the gospel, that ministry requires an uncommon messenger, and that ministry involves imitation. And now, number four, ministry must produce not only exemplary lives, but effective lives. Ministry must produce not only exemplary lives, but effective lives. Let's look at First Thessalonians Um, chapter 1, verse 7 again. Actually, we're going to back up to 6. He says, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, verse 7, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. The life that's imitatable is also an effective life. The, The Thessalonians became imitators for a reason, for a purpose says so that at the beginning of verse 7. That indicates there's a purpose going on here. You became imitators so that you became an example. In verse 6 and 7, there's a chain reaction taking place in gospel ministry. And that chain reaction is one person imitating another and then someone else imitating them. Christ is imitated by Paul and the men ministering with him. And then they become men that the Thessalonians imitate. And now the Thessalonians are examples all over Macedonia and Achaia. 
That's the chain reaction. Christ to Paul, Paul to the Thessalonians, the Thessalonians to anybody else in the region um, who hears about their faith. This is where we need to set our sights in gospel ministry. If we step into someone else's life simply for the person of being an example for them to follow, that's a good thing, but we're not thinking big enough. You know, what if we step into relationships, whether formal discipleship ministries uh, or discipleship relationships or informal discipleship that goes on between friends and members of small group? Well, when we do that, we want um, to go into those relationships thinking that as we are examples for them, we want to prepare them to be an example for others. It's a, it's it's bigger than that, than what we, what we typically think, right? Paul, and then Paul then offers an explanation in verse 8 of this imitation chain reaction that's been taking place. It's an explanation of what we mean by effective lives. Verse 8 says, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you. That's how, Paul, that's how the Thessalonians were, were the example. Now, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth. It's gone forth everywhere, and those words sounded forth means something like a trumpet blast. It was a distinct sounding forth to call an army um, to attention or to fight. And then notice how far that biblical trumpet blast went. He says not only to Macedonia and Achaia, but Paul says in every place your faith has gone forth. That's an effective sounding forth, right? The key statement here about... um, about how effective all this is happens in verse 8. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything else. This great preacher, Paul, he doesn't have a need to say anything else. God's word and their faith in Christ got blasted forth so loudly, it spoke so loudly for itself, their lives were so thoroughly transformed as believers that by the time Paul tried to add anything to it, he was really relaying old news. He had no need to say anything. I mean, think about that. Can you imagine? Here's the Apostle Paul, and you know he's just being reduced to silence. We've said that living a a life of ministry means that we never leave the gospel behind. It's the fabric of our thoughts, the joy of our hearts, the comfort of our souls, and what we're always looking to share with others. And it means being an uncommon messenger with that gospel, displaying God's power and spirit and conviction through gentleness. And it means being an example to others, having joy in the midst of trials. And now we've seen that we need to desire that people um, actually imitate our example. We want to be so effective that ministry is multiplied. Ministry continues through others. And we need to pray that God would use those um, we minister to in in our homes and in every sphere of influence to speak more broadly than we do big call but we don't want to shrink from it instead we want to look at it as something to aim for and to pray for and to hope for by God's grace this is what the gospel has the power to do so pray for God to use you in this way 
that the gospel would be proclaimed and lived out with a life that's imitatable for the people around us so that they would become an example to follow or an example to others. See the chain reaction? It's a big prayer. Um, It's a prayer of faith, but it's what Paul is describing here. And that's the kind of ministry we can aim for, that we need to aim for. Number five, ministry labors for nothing less than repentance. Ministry labors for nothing less than repentance. Let's look at verse 9, and he's explaining verse 8. Verse 8 ended with, we have no need to say anything. And why is that? Well, verse 9, for they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for a son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. The Macedonians and Achaeans and all the others were reporting two things. They were reporting about the gospel messenger that Paul was and the kind of reception he had with the Thessalonians. And uh, what kind of reception did Paul have? The word reception is the word for an entrance. Um, Paul had this wide open entrance, a welcome path into their lives. And that was a report that was going out. Paul's ministry was well received. Paul here is emphasizing again how important the messenger is his manner among them, the kind of man he proved to be among them, his behavior. He was never an obstacle to the gospel. Rather, we get the idea that when they saw him coming, they were thinking, you know, awesome, we say more. We want more time with you. We had never met anybody like him. And what was so different about Paul? Well, remember, he talked about that in uh, number two on your outline, that as he brought the message, he brought it with power, he brought it with the spirit, and with conviction, and displaying how the gospel had transformed him with gentleness and joy and tribulation. You know, they had never seen anyone like that. The life of the messenger is a huge component of gospel ministry. It helps us, um, and that helps complement something else. And it's the second thing that uh, the Macedonians were reporting. Remember, the first thing was they were reporting about Paul and his ministry team and the reception they had with the Thessalonians. And then second, they were reporting about how the Thessalonians turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for a son from heaven. They turned to God from idols. And what is that called when someone turns? It's repentance. Yeah, it's repentance. The report is about how they repented. And the point of the report is not just how Paul was received, but that the Thessalonians repented. The whole goal of being received was so that they would repent and that they would turn to the Lord. That's, that's true gospel ministry. That's what we mean when we say that ministry labors for nothing less than repentance. Most of the time, we focus on the first part without too much trouble. You know, we want to be liked. We want to be received. We want to be welcomed. We like that kind of reputation. But the Macedonians and the Cans, they, they couldn't only think of that aspect of gospel ministry. Um, they also thought of repentance. And now for those of you who are parents, um, you need to take these truths about ministry and even apply them and discipline too in our homes. Sometimes we can get this mistaken or have an unbiblical idea that if if you practice biblical discipline, you know, your kids aren't going to like you. Um, that's not the picture of gospel ministry we get here. The goal is to relate to your children 
so that you are easily received by them and your correction and discipline is received by them with hope that it'll produce the fruit of repentance in their life. And sometimes this means you do have to say hard things. And saying hard things does not have to be at odds. You go to them in such a way that it's crystal clear that you want to be right with them and you want to help them, help them know and follow Christ. Remember point number three, ministry involves imitation. So how about giving others, especially kids and those in our household, an example of repentance? Lives, um, of, of living lives characterized by repentance so that they can imitate our repentance. Now we'll look more at 1 Thessalonians here in a minute and we'll see that this is specifically referring to their repentance at the point of salvation, their conversion. But repentance unto salvation is just the beginning of a lifestyle of repentance in the life of a believer. A godly woman, an imitatable woman, is a woman living a life of repentance. So what does that even mean? Well, when we blow it, when we sin, when we've got a bad attitude, when we're fearful, uh, when we respond in anger, perhaps, well, we go to our kids, our husband, our parents, roommates, whomever we've sinned against, and we ask them to forgive us. And we go to the cross with our sin. We shepherd it with the truth of the gospel. That Jesus paid for that sin. He died for it. I'm no longer a slave to it. We can be obedient. And that is what we're called to do. Repentance means we purposefully turn from that sin. And we labor by God's grace to walk in godliness and obedience. So... Our own lifestyle of repentance is very necessary and powerful, a powerful part of being imitatable, being easily received by those to whom we come with the gospel. Especially, you know, when we're calling them to repentance, to turn from sin, and to turn to Christ in obedience. So, with the Thessalonians, what did this turning to God from idols look like? What characterized their repentance? Verse 9 and 10 says they turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for a son from heaven. They served God and they were, waited for Jesus. Point number five is that ministry labors for nothing less than repentance. And that means we labor for transformation of life. We labor to see people become servants of the Lord who long for Jesus' return. If we are only like, likable in gospel ministry, but people don't actually change, well, that should really burden their hearts. That should, that should be very unsatisfying. We can't be satisfied with just being received, just being welcomed into people's lives. We must persevere for the hope of repentance, for transformed lives in our friendships, in parenting, in small group, in our workplace, with our neighbors. We must always aim for repentance. And then remember, this is always done gently, like a nursing mother, not in a manner that is harsh or abrasive. Um, go, go to 2 Timothy 2, please. 2 Timothy 2, starting in verse 24, and we see where Paul emphasizes this again, about halfway through verse 25. 
we read, If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their sentence, and that's what we want, right? And escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Well, that's what we want to see. Of course, that's what we want. We want to see people re- repent. And what does God want to precede that? What would God say he wants to display in the process of drawing someone to repentance? What would we think? We would think, and rightly so, well, it's the gospel. We've got to have the right message. We've got to have the right message. That's absolutely true. But Paul is emphasizing something else here. What does he lay out before that repentance? says in verse 24, the Lord's bondservant, and that means the slave of Christ, the follower of Christ, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God might grant them repentance. You see that? God invests in his slave qualities that reflect the very same character he has in bringing us to repentance. Romans 2.4 says that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And it's our responsibility and our privilege to those who are under grace to be that kind of messenger. Not quarrelsome, but kind, patient, teaching, and correcting gently. To be that kind of slave of Christ in gospel ministry where we ourselves are not an obstacle to repentance. We cannot be concerned merely about the content. Yes, we are to be concerned about the content, but we must go beyond that. We need to be this kind of messenger, the messenger we've seen this morning in 1 Thessalonians. That is who God loves to use in bringing people to repentance. So it's being said here. That's the report that went out about Paul and his ministry partners. And if we're going to be that kind of women... We come back again and again to discipline one. We shepherd our hearts. We shepherd our hearts because we are concerned to step into the lives of our families and to others in our household. We're concerned that our homes become a place where the gospel is what shapes our care and our input into others' lives. And when we step into people's lives, we want the right message. And we're concerned to be a Christ-like gospel messenger. That's what we're aiming for as we gather at Wellspring. Once Wellspring's over and we move on, we never graduate from this. We never move on from shepherding our hearts to Jesus Christ and the truth of his word. We never stop ministering in God's ways, this way, the way we've seen today with the gospel. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I do pray that we would be imitatable women that we would be repentant women, that we would be joyful women because of the power of the gospel in us, the kind of life that proclaims your message, and it's the kind of messenger we want to be, patient with everyone, knowing how dependent we are, that we would shepherd our heart with your word in order to know you and love you more, and that we would overflow into the lives around us for your gospel's sake. I pray that would be true in our hearts, and as we go to discussion time, that we would, that we would encourage one another in this, encourage one another in the gospel, and be the kind of gospel messenger you've called us to be. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.